laugh with one another about remember that one time where we forgot that the sound system would the hdmi cable would also play through the tv and the music just kept playing and we couldn't figure out why like that kind of thing is what we get to experience together those are family kind of moments and so i think in a lot of ways we want things to be really smooth and great and grand and then they're just not and you have to remember that's where churches look more like a family less like a business more like a family, less like a concert, more like a family, less like a really good performance, right? And we get to experience that together. I think that's a really good thing. And as we've been talking about that, and what the church is supposed to be or ought to be, we've been working through, uh, we're going to start working through our four pillars of gospel, change, community, and mission. So last week, we kind of just talked about what it means to be God-centered and what it looks like to really try to our best to fulfill that great commandment that Jesus gives, that the Old Testament gives, to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then we're going to build off of that foundation that we laid last week as we look at these four different pillars that we have, gospel, change, community, mission. So today we're talking about gospel. Now, in many ways, I would say, while all four pillars are really important and we can see them here on the sign and you'll probably see on a t-shirt. So if you go to our website, those things, they also bleed together in a lot of ways like you can't have one without the other but i would say if one was going to be the cornerstone if one was going to prop up the other ones it's this one it's the gospel it's what does our church believe because what we believe will directly impact whether or not we actually live out the other three of change community and mission see the gospel informs us of what it means not only to be a church but how to live the christian life and what that looks like and so as we talk about that, we, we talk about what it might mean to be gospel-centered. That's, a, that's kind of a buzzword in, in certain subcultures of Christianity that we have in America. And it's one of those things, like, I don't know that I've ever heard of any Christian who, if you go to them, you're like, hey, do you think we should be gospel-centered? It's like, no. Right? Like, I don't know any Christian who would say that. Every Christian would say, like, yeah, we, we should be gospel-centered. But if I think, if you were to go up to maybe the radical Christian and say, hey, is your church gospel-centered, and what does that mean? They would probably say, uh, I don't know. It sounds like something we should be, like we want to be centered around the gospel, but what that actually flushes out into, what that actually means, can be really vague. It can be kind of hard to put our, put our hands around. In a lot of reasons, it's because the answer really is, it's pretty big and it's pretty extensive. So what I want to do today is I just want to share three truths about the gospel and how that impacts the local church as we walk through this passage in Romans. And I want to say that knowing that there's more than just three truths when it comes to the gospel. So we talk about what it means to be gospel-centered. What we're saying is every truth that comes out of this beautiful, true story, that there is a holy and just God who loves us so much that even though we rebelled against him in sin, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, who then rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death. And if we put our faith and trust in him and him alone, we will be saved. That is the gospel. But out of that story that I just shared, come pouring out all of these truths about who God is, who man is, who we are as a community of people drawn together, that then influence and impact the way we live life and the way that we do church. So I just wanna take three of them knowing that there's a lot more than just three. So as we seek to do that, what we wanna see is in these three truths that they're this. And I'll just list them off for you. If you're a note taker, you can take notes, but leave space between each one. That the gospel levels the playing field, 
that the gospel is a bloody gospel. And the last one, that the gospel has a purpose. And so those are three things that we're going to draw from just this one passage. And then I will say, stick around and we'll tell you about all the other things that the gospel does and how it impacts life. But we really can't do that in just one service. So as we look at that, let's go ahead and read our our passage for the day. Looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it will be on the screen as well. So our passage we're going to look at today is this. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So as we look at this, what I want to look at first is that the gospel levels the playing field. So what has happened in the book of Romans, as we kind of, in the next couple of weeks, parachute into passages, uh, I am really looking forward to when we get back to just good old-fashioned expository preaching, working through the books of the Bible, so I don't have to do this every time. But as we get into the book of Romans chapter 3, there's two chapters before it. And what's happened in those two chapters before, Paul is writing this letter to a church in Rome, and he is basically telling them his understanding of theology. Now he's doing that, as Paul's understanding, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he's doing it saying, this is who God is, and this is who people are. And as he's worked through Romans 1 and 2, he has shown us that there are these two groups of people that the Bible often talks about, Jews and Gentiles. Jews are anybody who are ethnically connected to Israel. Gentiles is everybody else, right? And what he's done in the first two chapters has shown us that whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, works are not going to make you right before God. So whether you are Jewish and you think the fulfilling the Old Testament laws, that you can actually live up to those, uh, what he's argued in that is you can't live up to it. I guess technically, if you could do it, they would, that would save you. You would be perfect and God's wrath wouldn't be on you. But you can't. And that's what he's been arguing the whole time, that there's no such thing as any human being who can do this. While at the same time, he's been saying to Gentiles, hey, even though you may not have had the law that the Jews had, you still are also condemned against your own conscience. Your own conscience that God has put in you because you're created in the image of God, it condemns you because God has made himself known. In Romans 1, it says, even his divine attributes in the created world. So that no one has an excuse. So whether you're Jewish or whether you're a Gentile, you don't have any excuse before God and you cannot work hard enough to save yourself. So that's what he's been saying. And so if you're in your Bible, you can kind of look up two verses and we'll throw it up on the screen. Romans 3, 19 through 20. This kind of summarizes those two chapters. It says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so he's been saying is the law isn't bad. The law shows us what sin is. The law shows us our need for a savior. And even if you're a, a Gentile unfamiliar with maybe the Ten Commandments and the Jewish laws, he's saying your own conscience 
deep inside you, it bears witness that something's not right between you and your creator. And there's gotta be something that makes you right. And he's saying in this, and we'll see he turns the argument here, that's why you need Jesus. That's what happens in Romans chapter three. He introduces Christ and what Jesus has done. And so as he does that, that's what we see is that the gospel levels the playing field. As we look at verses 21 through 24 there, just, but it says, but the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's another way to say it, revealed or made known apart from the law. Meaning, so even people, Gentiles, like probably most of us in here, I, I'm not Jewish. I don't have any Jewish heritage, but even people like me are without excuse for the law. Because again, our conscience is bearing witness against us. It's been manifest. It's been made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So Paul isn't saying we can get rid of our Old Testament either. We got to keep the Old Testament because it bears witness to what the New Testament is proclaiming. And that's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, that's what he means by all there, for all who believe. So anyone who believes, that's how you can be saved. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then all can only be justified, the next part of the passage there, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is it levels the playing field, that we're all on this equal plane before the cross, before the gospel. Now, what's really interesting in our world, when we talk about equality, the human condition is usually to say, like, equality is by, like, raising everybody up. What's interesting about the gospel is it kind of goes the other way. It brings us all equal by drawing us all low, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's saying no matter who you are, no matter your background, it doesn't matter. There's only one way that you're going to make it. There's only one way to be right before God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're a sinner. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It makes us and it levels us low. There is no other way other than Christ because Christ is the one who is, like we just sang in that, sh- that, that song, the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him he stands. Right? Jesus is the one who came and he fulfilled all those laws that we couldn't fulfill. He did the things that we can't do. And so what that means is, is there's no other way. So that means is that the Christian religion, the Christian worldview, it is very exclusive in one sense. There's only one path. But I like how a pastor named Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, he says this, the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it is the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the whole world. Now that's kind of a confusing sentence, but here's what he means by that, is while the path is narrow and it is only through Jesus, what he is saying is it is the most inclusive of all religions because it's saying no one can be good enough. Tim Keller is saying in the rest of the book is called uh, The Reason for God. It's a great book if you're wrestling with questions of, of how, you know, why should I believe in the Christian God? He does a really good job throughout it. But what he's saying is he's answering the objection of I can't believe in the Christian God because he's just too exclusive. What he's saying is actually every other religion is really exclusive. Because in every other faith, in every other religion, you have the haves and the have-nots. As we talked about last week, we're all just a bunch of law keepers. Even if we just change the laws, we're just saying, obeying the law is the way you make it. 
But in Christianity, in the Christian worldview, it is the most, it is exclusive in that it's only through Jesus, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth because it's saying no one can make it any other way. It's saying we're all on the same playing field. Nobody has a better shot at making it to a righteous standing before God than somebody else. Your background, your economic status, your ethnicity, your whether or not you were just like a good kid in school or a bad kid in school, the, the, the great sins of your past, none of it gets you any closer or further away from a relationship with God. We're all level before the cross. Everyone is seen as a great sinner in the need of a great savior. And that's the reality. And so we look at that and we say, okay, so that's the truth the gospel brings us, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that we're not making it on our own. So what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? How does that truth impact the church? Well, there's a lot of ways. I'm, I, I can't be exhausting all of them, but I'm going to list off quite a few. One is it means that our church can be a humble church because we know that none of us has made it on our own. It means when someone comes in and their background is different than your background, their sins look different than your sins, you can pick your jaw up off the floor because you can look and say, there go I, but for not by the grace of God. You would look and you look at that person and you say, you know, maybe my sin didn't manifest its way in the same way it did in your life, but I struggle with self-control too. I struggle with anger too. I struggle with fill in the blank. And, and I'm a sinner too. So we can come and people can come from these diverging backgrounds and, and lifestyles and whatever it might be, but we can say, listen, the entrance level is still Jesus and he can redeem all from sin. It can make us very, very humble. We don't have to be this arrogant people who judges people that aren't like us or don't come from the same world that we come from. And we can say, listen, we're all humbled before the cross. It makes us hospitable. See, if God can accept the greatest of sinners, who I am the chief of all sinners, which is the kind of worldview we should have, you should look at yourself as the chief of all sinners. If we can say that and God can enter, bring me into his home, into his family, you can bring anybody into your home, into your family. The gate is wide when it comes to who can be a part of Redemption Hill Church as long as it comes through Jesus. Anyone can come and be a part of our family because the entranceway is the same for all of us. We can be a hospitable people. It means that we should be really, really thankful. We should be a people who exude gratitude because we know I didn't do it. Jesus did it for me. And I am so thankful for all that Christ has done. It means we can be a people who can be happy. There's a lot of churches you walk into and it's like no one's very happy. They're just kind of like, you know, sad. And it's like a gathering of Eeyore all in one room. We don't have to be like that. We can be filled with joy. Why? Because we know salvation is ours and it's not going to go anywhere. Because it's been won by Jesus, you're going to be kept by Jesus. And that's a good thing that we can be happy about. We can have joy because the gospel brings us joy. And finally, another thing is we can be really generous. Because we know that everything that we are is because of what Christ has done. So we can have open hands as we look to the Savior who was rich, became poor for our sakes, is what the Bible tells us. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. You can be generous. You can have open hands with the things that you have in this world. 
with the people that we, we interact with and know because Jesus is our example and because we know I make it in, my interest in the kingdom is not dependent on my own works, which means this stuff, even the stuff that I can say I worked really hard for, it's not mine. It's all known. It's the Lord's. And I have a new and better kingdom waiting for me in glory. And so I can have open hands with the stuff that I have. And those are just a couple of things. I think we can go on and on and on of what it looks like when we say we're all laid low before the cross. And so it dramatically impacts the way we interact with one another. And so while the hard truth of our sinfulness, that's, that's, this is one of the truths that we don't like to talk about a lot sometimes because it's a little awkward to say like, hey man, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. While that hard truth is here and it paves the way to the good news of grace, I don't want to move us too far. I got another hard truth that we got to talk about and that's this, is the gospel. It's bloody. This is a bloody gospel that we have. As we look at our next couple verses, I'm going I'm to go back to verse 24 just to grab some context. We're going to hone in on verse, uh, the first part of verse 25. So he's talking about everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, by faith in Jesus, are justified by his grace. And as a gift through the redemption that is in, his, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. As we look at this verse, we look at this truth, we cannot get around the fact that we've got this bloody kind of religion. There's an old hymn that's called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And it's funny to me that, because there are people, modern folks who have changed that hymn sometimes, that there is a fountain filled with love. Because they just can't quite stomach this idea. It is, it is gross. It's morbid of a fountain being filled with blood. And while that's obviously very poetic language anyway, I think the reality is, is the morbidity that we experience about the blood of the cross, it's, it's purposeful. God didn't do that for no reason. He, he did that because blood is the sign of life. And he's saying Jesus is, is giving up his life for you. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament that the temple is this incredibly bloody place where sacrifices are happening over and over and over again. And so we see this word propitiation. I'm going to bet you probably didn't use that word somewhere uh, out and about this week. It's not a very common word that we use. It's, it's really kind of just in the Bible. And so that, that, that word propitiation means to appease the wrath of God. You see, God has a righteous anger against sin and all sin and must punish that sin. And that's what he did to Jesus. Is he, instead of punishing us, he punished Jesus. He poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ and that appeased the wrath of God. But what's really cool about this word as well is it's linked to another Hebrew term that means mercy seat. That the actual, the word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they use for the word for mercy seat is the same Greek being, word being used here in Romans. And so it gets connected to this thing called the mercy seat. And so the mercy seat, I think we have a picture here that we can show you, it just kind of helps. The mercy seat is that lid. So that's a uh, replica, it's not the real thing. It'd be so cool if it was a real thing because we lost it somewhere. But that's the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, and the Ark of the Covenant is throughout the Old Testament. And inside of that Ark are these holy items. So the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God are inside the Ark. And the Ark was where God would dwell with his people as a, a holy God. And that lid would cover the law of God, if you will. 
Uh, that's, that's one way you can think of it. It covered the law of God because the law condemns everybody, like we've already talked about, and it would cover that. And what's that supposed to, to look like with these two cherubim on each side and why it's called a mercy seat is, is you can think of it as like a throne, right? That would be somewhere where God would sit, if you will, when he would visit the children of Israel in the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And what would happen with that mercy seat is, is once a year, and, and this was in the temple, and the temple is this large kind of rectangular thing. There were these different rooms, and there's this veil, and there's this one room that's this really special place that's at the back that's called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant would be, behind a veil, hidden, and kept back from the people. Because God, as a holy God, could not dwell with them in fullness because he would kill them. And once a year, one person, the high priest, the person who would kind of be like the most holy guy, would get to enter that and make an atoning sacrifice for the people of Israel. Now, before he could even enter, he would have to slaughter a bull for his own sins and the sins of his family and his household. He would slaughter that bull and, and, and make a sacrifice outside of the Holy of Holies. And when he would go in, he would have to take the, the blood of that bull and he had to sprinkle it on that mercy seat. And that was, that was a symbol that his sin was being atoned for. And then what also happened then for the sake of Israel, there were, there's, there would be two very unlucky goats. They're both very unlucky goats. They'd be brought in and they represented Israel. And they would cast a lot and whoever the lot would fall to, that was the goat that we would maybe call a scapegoat. Uh, the scapegoat would be brought before the people. The priest would put his hand on the, his head. They would confess the sins of the people. And then it would be led out into the wilderness uh, and he's called a scapegoat. Now you can think of that term. We use that a lot of times, the scapegoat. That's usually somebody who gets the fall, right? Who catches all the guilt. And that's what's happening. That goat is literally taking on the guilt of all the people. Now, as he's brought out into the wilderness, we got to be really careful that we don't think it's like when mom and dad took your puppy out to the farm, right? To frolic and play for all of its days. That's not what's happening to the scapegoat. The scapegoat is going to the wilderness. The wilderness is not a wonderful place for goats, domesticated goats in particular. The scapegoat is going where bears and lions live and prowl and look for nice little domesticated goats who don't know any better. Okay? It is being led out into the wilderness to literally be torn to shreds by these wild beasts and all that the wilderness is. And that is symbolic, saying the sins of the people of Israel are being taken out into the wilderness to experience the judgment of God. And then the other goat didn't have it any better. He was just immediately slaughtered for the sake of the sins of the people. And like he would come and sprinkle that bull's goat on, his, on the altar, he would take that, that goat's blood. He would make a sacrifice outside the Holy Holies. He went in. He would also have to take that goat's blood and put it on the altar and sprinkle it over the altar as well. And so what was happening is propitiation was being made for the people of Israel and the sprinkling of blood on the seat of propitiation. Or another way to say that, the mercy seat. So this seat that covered the law of God, that covered their sin and their guilt, was then being the wrath of God being appeased once a year through this blood sacrifice. Now listen though, what the, the writer of Hebrews tells us about this in the, in the New Testament, about this thing. He says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
So what's happening here? The writer of Hebrews is telling us Jesus is fulfilling multiple roles that were happening in the temple. He's the goat. He is the spotless lamb, as John calls him. He is the, the temple itself. He's the embodiment of the dwelling place of God. He is, another way to think it, is the mercy seat. Jesus is the propitiation. He's where that appeasing of God is happening is in the flesh of Jesus Christ, right? So he is the one who now covers us and keeps us from being judged by God. He's the one who takes on the judgment of God. And what's really interesting too is Jesus in Hebrews, it tells, he's also the priest. He's also the one going and making atonement on our behalf and interceding for us. And he's the new and better one of those things. That song we just sang, it even says he's the true and better Adam come to save hellbound man. That's what we're saying is in the Old Testament, it's constantly foreshadowing and showing us, hey, something better is coming. Something better is coming. And so there's a better temple. There's a better sacrifice. There's a better mercy seat. And it's all being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is appeasing the wrath of God through his blood sacrifice for our sins. And so to help us just kind of deal with that and move through that, I want to read from the book of Matthew. This is a bit of a longer reading, so, so hang with me. But Matthew 27, and I want us to, to see what actually happens in the crucifixion. So Matthew 27, picking up in verses 27, and we'll go to verse 54. Again, it'll be on the screen. It says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him and they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man, of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments around them and by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Because Jesus had called himself the temple and said that he would rebuild it in three days. They thought he would talk about the actual temple. He was talking about the new and better temple, his body, himself. Save yourself. Don't they know that they're going to be wrong? Because he's going to do just that. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him then. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, cried, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that's the moment that the God, the father pours out his wrath on Jesus so that he might be the propitiation, the appeasement of that wrath for your sin. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple, that veil, was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Did you hear what happened to that curtain? It's torn in two. So what's being said? It's something incredible. Listen, the people of Israel can never be brought close to the presence of God or else they would die. If a priest entered that Holy of Holies without doing the right things, he would die. And Jesus is saying, it is finished. It is done. Sin has been conquered and defeated and he yields up his spirit. And when he does that, that curtain gets torn in two. And it's saying, God can now dwell with his people directly. The holiness of God can now be in me and you. We talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you come to believe, when you're justified in faith, the Spirit of God literally lives inside you. And as Jesus was that temple, the Bible tells us that we now get to be that temple, built up as precious stones with Christ being the cornerstone, as in 1 Peter 2. Do you know how amazing that is? That the God of the universe who could not be in the presence of people now gets to come and be in our presence. He lives inside of you. You cannot read that story. You can't see what's happening from the Old Testament into the New and leave with any other reality of this. That Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you so much that even though you are fallen short of the glory of God, you're a sinner before holy God, he came and he died and he took that cross for you. That is amazing. And that has a direct impact on what it looks like to be a part of the local church. See, if that's the kind of love that motivates Jesus, if that's the kind of person that he is, when you say that you're in Christ, when we say that the Spirit indwells us, which we do as Christians, when we say that we gather here and Jesus is present with us in these moments as we come together, We've got to ask that question, man, are you going to sacrifice for one another? Church, will you be generous for one another? Will you be kind and compassionate when your other brothers and sisters aren't so kind and compassionate? Will you show grace when people sin against you? Will you forbear with other people's difficulties? Will you bleed for each other? That's a question that we don't have to answer very much here in the West and praise God for it. And I hope that day doesn't come in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime or for a long, long time ever. <clears throat> but you realize in most parts of the world, the general experience of most Christians in the course of humanity has been that, brother, will you believe for me? When they come and they knock down your door and they haul you away, are you gonna wrap me out too? Our dear brother, dear sister, will you bleed for me? That's what the church is. We have this beautiful, amazing thing. And again, praise the Lord. Use freedom to its full advantage. Go and preach the gospel boldly. Because the reality is, when we look at this Bible, 
the general experience of most Christians is different. And that had a direct impact on them as they looked at their bloody Savior. See, I don't think that they changed the lyric of there is a fountain filled with blood. I think they know and they experience that fountain and they glory and rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Will we bear with one another? Will we suffer for the sake of Jesus? Will we live sacrificially? Will we bleed for each other? I believe that's the call of the gospel. Our gospel is bloody. It is stained with sacrifice. But we also need to know is that sacrifice, that difficulty, it is not meaningless. It all has a purpose. See, the gospel is working a purpose. Picking up in the second half of verse 25 of our passage this morning, it says, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, one of the last sermons we listened to at, at Paramount Church in our sending church before we went, Rush had talked about the, the goodness of God and we talked about you know the, the mantra that a lot of Christians did and our, our congregation followed suit. He trapped them, you know, God is good. And they said, all the time, all the time, God is good. And he pointed out in that, that that is 100% true. But he said, you know, one of the problems with some of the things like that, and we just gotta be careful, is we limit our, our vocabulary. And that's all we think about God, right? And he's good. He, oh, he is abundantly good. But isn't it awesome that he's more? He's loving, he's kind, he's compassionate, he's just. <clears throat> he's a ruler, he's a king, right? All those kind of things. I want to suggest to you something really similar happens when we ask the question in a room, why did Jesus die on the cross? We typically say first and only because he loves us. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves us. But you know that's not the only reason that Jesus dies on the cross? That we don't want to limit it just to that? Listen to this passage. This, what is he talking about? What's the this? The this is God putting forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's everything we just talked about. This was to what? Show God's righteousness. Don't diminish what Jesus has done on the cross by only focusing on one aspect. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. God does love you. He loves the world. But you know that he also loves and cares very much about his own glory and his own righteousness and his own namesake. This is telling us, why did God do this? God did this for his righteousness. Why did God do this? So that he might be proven just and the justifier of the ones who have faith in Jesus. God has done this because he is a righteous God who does have anger against sin, but he appeases it. And I want you to know as you hear that and you think, what? Well, God, God didn't just die for me. God, you know, like that's not the only thing that's happening in this moment of the cross. I want you to know that's not out of character. We see this happening in other parts of scripture. Look at the, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 22. I'll give just a moment. Oh, it's there. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, 
which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and, I, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall not dwell in the land that I, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and I will make it abundant and I will not lay famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine upon the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your evil deeds, that you were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So what's happening there is they're in exile and God is promising to bring them back to Israel. He has judged them for, for their sins and he has pushed them out into the exile. And he's saying that they're gonna bring them back. But listen, it's not because they got it together. It's not because they started obeying. It's for his own name's sake that he's gonna do this. Now here's what's really tricky about this. Sorry, I feel like this is a falling one. It's really important in this moment that we realize that God is not like us. So we talked about that last week a little bit, right? The great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we said, and then Jesus has to add the second commandment. Why? Because they're married together. You can't love God with all that you are and not love your neighbor. And then I even talked a little bit about self-love and the danger of self-love. Now this week I'm saying God loves himself. God is not like us. When you love yourself, you ain't going to sacrifice for anybody. When you love yourself, you'll do the opposite. You'll sacrifice other people for your comfort, for the things that you want, for your desires. But God isn't like you. When it comes time for God to be concerned about his own righteousness, when it comes time for God to say, I love my own glory, I love my own justice, and I'm gonna make it right, his answer to that is to die a sacrificial death for sinners. God is not like you. And we need to be thankful for that. See, when God loves himself, God loves others. When God is first, as he ought to be, because of his very being and nature and who he is at his very core of all goodness and all love and compassion and kindness, his guttural reaction to the world and to sin is to take on flesh, take on the burdens of this world, die for sinners who don't deserve it, and conquer the death we could never conquer on our own. That's who God is. He is just so much unlike me and you. 
And it is so important that we recognize that God's purpose and chief purpose and what he's doing in the gospel is his own righteousness. It's to prove that he might be just in the justifier of sin. But we get to hold that in tandem with that means God loves us and he's going to show that love. The book of Romans uh, 5.8. I think I skipped this earlier, Jimmy. I'm so sorry. It says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of God that we serve. A God who's so enthralled with himself, but because of who he is, that then pours out in love for undeserving sinners. It is just so much different than what happened if I were God or if you were God. We'd make it all about ourselves, and that would be a really bad thing for everybody else. It might be a good thing for, like, some people, right? But certainly not for everyone. But God hasn't done that. He has created the exclusive yet inclusive gospel. Jesus is the only way, but all might come. That is a true and amazing thing. What this passage does, what this reality does, is it gives us a purpose. It gives us as a church a purpose. It tells us what is the chief purpose in our church. The chief purpose is to glorify God, and we know that when we do that, we will love other people. Isn't that great? We know that when we love God the way that we ought to love God, that it will pour out in more compassion, more grace, more kindness for the people around us. Well, as I said this morning, I only have three truths to give you. There's a lot more throughout the scriptures. And I want to invite you to keep coming back and keep learning. How does the gospel impact our lives as Christians? We just looked at three today. But the reality is, is the gospel is kind of like a fountain. If we kind of look at You can see here on the, on the pictures that we have, this fountain has a lot of different streams flowing out of it. Today, we've kind of just taken like three streams, if you will. And I've tried to show you three things that the gospel does and how it impacts us. As we look at that, what I, what I mean with that the gospel is like a fountain in it, come these truths flowing out of it. And each stream kind of represents that truth. And they each have kind of maybe something different to say. So I want to tell you that the gospel has things to say about parenting. The gospel has things to say about marriage. The gospel has things to say about your relationships with your coworkers. The gospel has things to say that I just can't unpack in one sermon. It's like this never-ending, unending fountain where it shoots off in all these streams and, and, and breathes life and living water into this, this world that we live in. But what's amazing about it is it all comes from the same source. All that water is coming from the same head of the fountain, and that's the gospel. The gospel is the fountain head that then all of these beautiful truths of the Christian life come streaming out of and help us live and know. And so what we want to do is we want to come here week after week, and we'll probably just take one of those truths and pluck it out and tease it out. How does that impact your life? How does that impact who you are? And that's why it's so important. I, I often I'll meet with people, and, and it's, they just kind of want a quick fix. Like, here's all the things going on in my life, Josh. Like, what should I do? And my answer is never a quick fix. Like, what should you do? If, if they are a Christian, I'll say, if they're not a Christian, I'll say, you should, you know, you gotta give your life to Jesus, step one. But if they are a Christian, a lot of times it's, you gotta get plugged into a healthy local church that preaches the gospel Sunday after Sunday, because you need to be reminded of this week after week after week. You need to be a part of a small group. 
even for a small group of people. Here at our church, we do that in what's called community group. We do that on Thursday nights right now in the park. The reason we do that is because we know that this is just not enough for me to come and just talk at you for 30 minutes to 40 minutes. You've got to flush this out with other people. You've got to talk about it. You've got to get around each other. You've got to invite each other into your homes and into your life. And those small groups, they help us to do that better. It's not just this one-time fix-it-all thing that, that you can then do. What I'm saying is you've got to connect yourself into that fountain. You've got to hook yourself into that gospel. So you might give the living water that can only come from Christ. And I wish I could just say, hey, just do it right here, right now. Sign this car, raise your hand, do this thing. And there you go. Jesus is going to fix all your problems. That's not how it works. That's why we plant churches when we don't just hand out gospel tracts. I love gospel tracts, and we do that. We do that at the farmer's market every Monday. But listen, that's just the entry gate. You want to experience all that the gospel has from you? You've got to get plugged in. You've got to be a part of a church, of a body of people who are committed to this and saying, I'm going to walk with you. And I need to go to a place where I can know people, where I can get to know them. I can know my pastor. That's a part of what this looks like. And that's what we're inviting you guys into as we create Redemption Hill Church. Because we just want to be another outpost for the gospel. We want another place where people can come and dip into that fountain and, and receive life and life abundant. So that's what I want to invite you to. It's what I want to encourage you to today, that you would take that next step, whatever that is for you. Whether that's coming here on Sundays or inviting someone to come with you, or whether that's coming and being a part of our small groups on Thursday nights, we're going to invite you to come and start to experience all that the gospel has for you because it is a bit complex and there's a lot more to it. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you for each good thing you give us. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much, Lord, that you care for us, that you're compassionate and kind. We thank you, God, that you're concerned about your own righteousness, your own name's sake. And that when that happens, Lord, you then pour out your love on others. Thank you for the ways that you've blessed us. Bless us all.